Well, our text this morning is Psalm 5. Psalm 5. Last week's text, Psalm 4, was an evening prayer, and this one is a morning prayer, and it has been used as such since ancient times. We'll make five points. They are there in your bulletin. Morning watch, God of justice, worship and life, justice, and then sure defense. So first then, the morning watch, morning watch, Psalm 5. The psalmist, he's been maliciously uh, lied about, and so he starts with a series of urgent pleas, Listen to my words, consider my lament, hear my cry for help. He's sighing, he's groaning, as the psalmist often is. He's crying out, and in his prayers, he appeals to my God and my King. This is covenant language. David the King is in covenant with God, thus it's my God and my King. And this tells us at the outset that this is not merely a private matter. This is not a private matter. It has to do with the Davidic kingship. It has to do with God's rule and God's realm. We should try to connect our prayers as quickly and as simply as as possible to God, His kingdom, His name, and His cause. We should learn to do that fast. Connect our need to his name. David does that immediately in the beginning of this psalm. And the psalmist starts his day, he starts his day with prayer. In the morning, Lord, the text says, you will hear my voice. Now many of you know I am not a morning person. I tend to gloss this as in the latter part of the morning, Lord, you will hear my voice. (laughs) But whatever time you rise should be the time when the Lord hears your voice. Think about how practical this is, right? The first thing you say should be directed toward God in ingratitude because he's kept you. And he's kept yours through the night. And we've already seen in the, in the prior Psalms what an inestimable blessing sleep and waking from it is. And so in the morning, he says, I lay my request before you or I prepare a sacrifice. And so he starts the day with prayer and then the text says he waits or he watches expectantly. This is also important because it's easy to give up in prayer. To pray and then forget to watch or to wait. And so we give up, we settle, or we lower our expectations. Maybe we even lose our expectations. Especially after disappointments or unanswered prayers or long, long delayed answers. We stop watching. Often I think we do this subconsciously. 
we think if I'm not out on a limb in prayer, if my heart is not poured out vulnerably in the Lord's hands, then if he doesn't appear to respond, I won't get hurt. So I'd rather play it safe. We sort of decide, maybe we can live without getting all these pleas answered. But, but if, as here, we're ultimately praying about the Lord's realm, His name, His kingdom, we cannot do We need to revive ourselves. Morning by morning and watch and wait and pray expectantly. This is what our Lord means when He says to His disciples, watch and pray. It's not enough actually to just pray. After you pray, you have to watch. And this should start in the morning, the text says. It should start in the morning because you arise on a battlefield. And each day, Jesus tells us, we'll have enough trouble sufficient to it. So get out in front of the trouble with your morning sacrifice of prayer. The second second thing I want to look at here is the God of justice. And, And here... As the psalm continues, the the big picture is this. Our prayers, especially our prayers for deliverance, or as here for salvation from his foes, these prayers rest, they rest on the very nature and character of our God. The psalmist is being lied about, slanderously, and so he appeals to God's character, and he says to God, you are not... A God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, Lord, evil people cannot dwell. Meaning they can't sojourn or lodge. They have no entry into God's presence. The arrogant, he says, cannot stand in your presence. God is firmly, without exception, implacable. He is opposed to evil. He makes no compromises with it. And this is good news for us when we're praying about evil. When we're praying about evil man or evil, disordered, broken situations. We're doing what the psalmist is doing here. We're telling God, we're reminding him, if you will, that this is not a personal vendetta, O Lord, that I am praying to you about. I am not asking you to settle a personal matter on my behalf. This is about your character. It is you who should not, indeed, it is you who cannot tolerate this situation. This is how we connect our need to his name. Evil cannot sojourn with God, the text says. Because he hates all who do wrong. He destroys those who tell lies, the text says. Now these are very, very strong words. The text says... God hates the way. He hates those who are behaving as David's enemies are. Further, it says he detests the bloodthirsty and the deceitful. Shocking language in many ways. Let me say a word about this language, hopefully a clarifying word. Um, You know the popular saying, right? Um, Hate the sin and love the sinner. Now, I understand the appeal, 
And it, it's trying to get at something very important. It is. But if we, if we look at this text, by the way, and it's not just this text, there are many, many more like it in Scripture. And we take it seriously. Then hate the sin, love the sinner is not quite right. It is not quite right, is it? God, the text says, hates the people in view. Not just their deeds. So we have a choice here. We can chuck the Bible and go with our own sentiment, or we can figure out what this means. One thing this teaches us, I think, is that we cannot artificially separate a person from what they habitually do. Hate the sinner, love the hate the sin, love the sinner tends to do this. If a person continually steals, they are a thief. They're not just a good person who happens to continually steal. You, you become what you perpetually do, and this text acknowledges that. These are perpetually evil men. They are the enemies of David in the kingdom. But there's another issue here with this language, I think, and it's certainly by far the more important one. God is love. God is love. He loves the world. His love and his mercy are over all his works. He pours out his kindness and his goodness to all, even to his enemies. So, how do we square that with the sentiments here about his hatred? The problem lies, I think, in thinking that love and hatred are opposites, that they're incompatible. That is not true. They're actually two sides of the same reality. The opposite of love is really something closer to indifference or detachment. If you don't really love someone, you don't care about them, you're not invested in their behavior. So you're indifferent. This is why you can only really hate, I mean really hate, those closest to you. This is why the fiercest loves, the closest bonds, give rise to the fiercest hatreds. So, God is love. And because he is holy and just caring love, he can hate those he loves. And this is no yin and yang, no darkness and light in God. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. God's not part love, part hatred. He's all love. And it's just because he's love, nothing but love, only love, always love, divine love, that he hates. You know what the prime example of this is? You. The people of God. We were, Ephesians 2 tells us, objects of his wrath. Objects of judgment like all the rest. And yet, the text says, we were loved. 
We were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And you know what the great Augustine said about this? He said, in a marvelous way, this means God loved us even while he hated us. So, love the sin and hate the sinner is trying, I think unsuccessfully, but it's squinting toward the idea that you can in fact hate a person you love. Of course, we do this very poorly. (laughs) Um, Our hatred easily becomes unjust or disordered. We, We obscure love and mercy. But God does this in all things with ease, with divine perfection. So when you pray, you pray to this God whose love is perfect and you appeal to his character and he does not tolerate evil. It cannot stand in his presence and that character is your hope because it's the hope of a reconciled and renewed world, that character. A world where righteousness dwells. The third thing here is worship in life. And in verse 7 he says, Notice, but I by your great love can come into your house. The same holy love under which some are hardened draws others into the house of God. Notice this. The psalmist doesn't say that he's deserving to enter the house of God. He knows that if God were to deal with him strictly then the the integrity of God as judge would be our undoing. But God's love is something he's responded to. It's drawn him in. And contrary to his enemies, who cannot stand in the Lord's presence, he said, he says, I can stand in your presence. He's come to public worship. But notice how how he got there. He started his day by praying to the Lord in the morning. When you wake up in the morning... And you pray to God, you've already pointed yourself to this house. To this day. Worship leads out to life. Life leads back to worship. This place should spur you to morning prayer. Morning prayer brings you back to this place. That dynamic is here in Psalm 5. The fourth point is justice. He's appealed to the God of justice. And here, what he does is he asks now, he asks for the judgment to be rendered. So, here we see clearly the nature of the slanders he's been subject to. We haven't seen that yet in the text, but here we get a bit more of a glimpse of David's foes. He mentions their deceitful mouths. Their throats, he says, are open graves. Their tongues tell lies. All of this from a heart full of malice. And then in verse 10, in verse 10, he calls for the axe to fall. Declare them guilty. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Their own intrigues will cause their fall. Even though God is judging, there's a sense in which evil carries within its own breast its own judgment, the seeds of its own demise. Now, if you've been reading the Psalms, and I hope you have, uh, you'll notice there's a lot of this kind of language in the book of Psalms. These prayers in the Psalms, there are in other places in Scripture, 
Prayers for the judgment of enemies are known as imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory meaning to call down a judgment. These are very controversial psalms and moderns don't know what to do with them. They make us uncomfortable. So I want to say a few words about them. Because you will encounter this over and over and over. If you read the first, say, 20 psalms, you'll find imprecations, the calling, the desire to call down judgment on an enemy in something like 13 or 14 of them. This is not in one or two or three psalms. It's in dozens of them. So, let me say a few things about this. First, notice the next line in the text. Notice this. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. Even though they're David's enemies in the case at hand, they are really God's enemies. This is always important in the Psalms. David the king is a type of Christ, a public person. In a sense, he is Christ praying these prayers. And he's praying against the enemies of God the king. The New Testament regularly takes the words of the Psalms and places them on the lips of Jesus Christ, the greater David. Even though the historical Jesus never said those words from the Psalms in his historical life that we have recorded. There's a sense in which the New Testament authors knew the Psalms are about David, who's the anointed one, the Christ, the King. And thus, with caution and with care, we should think of Jesus as the one praying at least some set of these Psalms. So, if they're about God and not David personally, that means we cannot use these prayers for personal affronts and vendettas. David, many times in his life, many times, refused to take personal vengeance. Against Saul, for example. Both testaments forbid you taking personal vengeance. And yet we have all these prayers. And David knows the difference between praying for God the King to uphold his name in holy love and his own personal vengeance. We have to know that as well. The second thing about these prayers is we should not pit the Old Testament against the New Testament here. As if the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are at odds somehow. It's the same God. And yes, there's a fuller picture of His love and mercy in the New Testament. But what is often missed is there's a fuller picture of His judgment in the New Testament too. Which testament has the greater judgment, the more pervasive judgment, the more horrific judgment, the more terrible judgment? The New Testament. But it's important to note that the New Testament, even leaving the final judgment aside, let's just leave that aside. The New Testament has its cursing, its curses. John the Baptist opens the New Testament with nothing but the calling down of a fiery judgment on those who do not repent. Paul curses those who preach a false gospel in Galatians 1. The martyrs we saw in Revelation are at this very hour praying holy prayers for their blood to be avenged in heaven. Jesus pronounces a series of stinging woes or curses on the Pharisees. 
And the Jesus who prayed for the forgiveness of his enemies, those who crucified him, will return again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So judgment is not absent from the New Testament. Just as grace and mercy are not absent from the Old, we have to be careful not to pit these things against one another. Third, remember this. It is God who has promised as part of the Abrahamic covenant, which is fulfilled in Jesus, that he would bless those who bless Abraham's seed and he would curse those who curse him. So these sorts of prayers simply remind God that upholding his holy covenant always implies blessing and curses. Fourth, and this is the basic way this works in the New Testament, and this is very important. The pattern of the Lord's Prayer. When we pray for the Lord's name to be hallowed, we are praying for blasphemy to cease. When we pray for his kingdom to come, we are praying for the overthrow of all opposing kingdoms. All satanic regimes. When we pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for an end to everything that opposes his will. When we pray for him to deliver us from evil, we are praying for evil to be banished. We are praying for the intrigues of the wicked to fail. It is true that the Lord's Prayer does not directly call down judgments, but it most surely indirectly does, leaving it to the hands of God and His discretion. What this text is, is simply an Old Testament version of the Lord's Prayer. I want to make one more note on this. These prayers, in the case of praying directly against one's enemies, do have to be used cautiously where there's been sustained, bloodthirsty, malicious wickedness against the cause of Christ and his church. And it's been pursued for a while. We should always pray for our enemies. Jesus taught us that. But in cases like this, and this is what the Lord's Prayer does, we can pray that if they refuse to repent. And this refusal is obvious and sustained that God would cause their plots and intrigues to fall. The martyrs in heaven are praying this way now. Christians in Syria and Iraq should pray this way against ISIS. And we should pray with them. Now, we must not be careful to overuse the direct appeal. If you have any doubt, pray the Lord's Prayer. Leave it in God's hands. But you are not escaping the fact that the very heart of prayer in the New Covenant, the Lord's Prayer, is a prayer which calls for God to destroy, at his discretion, his enemies. So the final thing I want to say on Psalm 5 is sure defense. He's called for God to administer justice. It's not something we can take in our own hands. But he calls for the saints then who take refuge in the Lord to be glad. It's a psalm of joy. The danger has not been removed. But we know the judge of all the earth will do what's right. So the saints rejoice now. You know, if there was no future promise that the dead would be raised, 
that the martyrs would be vindicated, that the creation would be healed and restored, I would have no joy in my life. (laughs) I mean, what would be the point? There's probably a few people saying, well, you don't have that much as it is. I'm glad that promise is out there. But, um, but this promise that God will vindicate his name. Look, I see, you see, we all see enough injustice every day to wear a sensitive person out. Right? The whole thing is groaning and sighing, Paul says, for all of its beauty, for all of its delightfulness. For all of its regularity, nevertheless, we can rejoice because God is going to set the world right. And the psalmist says to you, even in the midst of your distress, God spreads his protection over you. The psalm ends this way. He blesses you. He surrounds you with favor as with a shield. This is why the righteous sing. Singing... In the face of slander, that's a sign of victory. Try that. Sing. Sing about the people in your life who are really getting under your skin. Sing praise to God. Pray for them. Bless the Lord's name. That's what he... I mean, David has all these enemies. And he says, let the righteous sing. Jesus says the same thing. If you have foes or enemies, that's cause for rejoicing. But I want to make one last crucial point, briefly. And it's important. We are all of us lined up, ranged, if you will, on the side, now get this, on the side of the psalmist's enemies in this text. How, you might ask. Well, It is this way. In the New Testament, in Romans 3, Paul cites the speech of the psalmist's enemies in verse 9. This is very important. Paul cites verse 9. Their malice, their deceit, their throats being an open grave. And you know who he cites it of? You and me. Of all who are outside of Christ. That this, Paul says, is one of the ways we have all sinned. And we all fall short of the glory of God. So there's no no ground for boasting or self-righteousness, even if you have to pray this sort of prayer. We cannot read these psalms apart from or outside of Jesus Christ. He's the greater son of David. He faced greater enemies than David. Greater slander, greater deceit. He's borne the curses that he calls down on his enemies. The curses of the covenant against you. And because Jesus has done that, that means you can pray this prayer in him. You can have a refuge in him. A place of protection and blessing and joy and song. If you pray this prayer outside of Jesus Christ, you're going to sound like a twit. That's a technical word for a person who's not very nice. Right? You're going to sound self-righteous. We have to think all the way through the prayer into Christ as the greater David who has borne our cursing, our deceit, our slander, our lies. And now in him, 
We pray for his kingdom to come at his holy discretion. He has provided atonement, and that means your morning sacrifices, they're accepted. Your prayers for the king's justice are heard. Let the Lord God hear your voice in the morning, and then stand and watch and wait expectantly. The kingdom of God is at hand. Amen.